0: I only have them twice. How can you go and not have a churro? We only want it if it's hot and you dip it in ice cream. Well, yeah. he's going to eat the rest of my churro. <laughs>
1: Welcome to 50% with Marcel Combs, my good friend and mentor. I'm DeAntha Grattan and on this podcast, she will travel a journey of leadership with each guest as she analyzes the ingredients that lead women to their current role. Marcel's goal is for you to walk away with tools to support your very own journey, no matter where your current destination is today.
0: Hello, dear. <laughs> Hi, Marcel. What do you got going today? Oh, you know we have the most interesting woman that we're gonna talk to. Communication. Yes. Negotiator. Culture. Mm-hmm. She works with the United Nations yeah. uh, through her through her own company. Has a brand new book out, which we're going to review. We haven't read yet, uh, I'm though. I'm
1: looking forward to that. Yeah, new
0: story, new power: A Woman's Guide to Negotiation, Negotiation. Mm-hmm. and which the truth is, we if you're in business or really just in life, there you have to negotiate things Even every day. In your family, Marcel. Every- <laughs> Oh yeah. So, and in your family. Yeah. So so she's a great woman, Beth Fisher Yoshida. She has her doctorate. Okay. Um she teaches at Columbia. I mean, she she just has such interesting things to say about just uh women and and negotiation and culture. I, I think culture. the audience will yes. love yeah. her. They're going to learn a lot. Learn a lot. Okay, let's go. Good morning, Beth. How are you today?
1: I'm fine. Thank you so much, Marcelle. Great to see you.
0: Yes, it's, it's so good to see you too. I, we're so excited to be able to take a few moments and learn about you and the journey you've been on. And, and generally, I just start with letting my guests talk about, you know, what, wherever you want to begin. Some people begin at birth, which is, you know, uh, <laughs> great because they have an interesting story. But wherever you want to be, begin to talk to us a little bit about where, where you started and where you are today.
1: Sure. So I started my earlier career as um, a teacher of children with learning and behavioral disorders. And uh, I also have an art background. And so part of that took me to Japan, where I lived for 13 years. I worked at first in the international schools, working with children who had some kind of learning issues, or maybe they came into the school system a little bit later and needed to be caught up. I also worked with teachers on how to accommodate students like that in their classrooms and then i uh, came back to the us for a few years i went back again and i worked at mckinsey and company as a training manager in their management consulting firm and it really was a person who coordinated with the rest of the firm around the world in in terms of training and workshops and also in the asia region When I came back to the U.S., I started my own company. I started a doctoral program. I just did everything very high on the stress scale: moving countries, buying a house, (laughs) everything. And then eventually, I uh, just—I one of my clients has been the United Nations since 1996, believe it or not. And I also started um, at uh, Columbia University. My first master's is from Columbia University, but I came back working uh, in the Center for Conflict Resolution and Negotiation and now I am a professor of practice at the university, and I run a master's program for 15 years so far in uh, negotiation and conflict resolution, and I also do writing and consulting, coaching, and so on.
0: You've been busy. I've been busy. (laughs) (laughs) You've been busy. I've only been to Japan once, and it was a wish of my daughter when she graduated from college let's just say I probably didn't get the cultural tour we went to a cat cafe and oh, yeah. <laughs> where you pet <laughs> the cats uh, yeah. not not in my top favorite list but so much on her top favorite list Tokyo probably uh, ranks right up there in the most unusual places I've ever been we also <laughs> went to Kyoto which is lovely you know, cultural place, and then Okinawa, because my husband's uncle was killed in World War II there. So you were there 13 years, uh, and you you talk a lot about culture. So um, how did you adjust to that culture, and, and what do you think are positive or negative things we could glean from that?
1: Sure, so I come from New York City, and so I'm this brazen, tough, independent New York woman. And then I go to Japan and I just was hit with culture clash because I didn't understand the communication cues, right? So in New York City, if you're having a conversation with somebody, it's very fast paced. And after three second pause, it's somebody else's turn to talk. In Japan, the pauses in conversation were much longer. I was so physically and emotionally uncomfortable. I wasn't sure what the cues were and when I was supposed to talk. Is this person finished or not? People smile and uh, the meaning of the smile is different. So I had to learn what that smile means. I had to learn not to speak first in a conversation, which is a very typical, like, let's just jump in there and and say something, but to really wait and create space for other people to participate. And that experience alone of being in Japan really fueled my next career choice, which was really working in cross-cultural or intercultural conflict And communication, and that's what led me down the path of working in cross-cultural negotiation and conflict resolution.
0: Hmm. You know, I think um, in society today, 2023, and from a political landscape, um, and this is only in Marcel Combs' uh, opinion, is that we've kind of forgotten how to resolve conflict. It's either you're in my boat or you're in somebody else's boat and there's no listening or understanding. You, you've you had a, a long history in this type of thing. What are you doing and what could others do to try to resolve some of those issues?
1: Yeah, you bring up a good point about people not listening. I think we've lost patience and I, I kind of equate it like with a muscle. You know, they say like muscle memory so if you dance and you hear the music, you automatically know the steps. I think it's also the same with listening and communication. If you don't practice it, I think you lose it. You get a little rusty. And I think one of the things that's happened is we've lost the ability or and the patience to just sit with ambiguity, to just sit with disagreement and just let it be. And it doesn't mean you have to agree. It doesn't mean there's a threat, but we've lost that ability, which leads to A loss of respect for a difference of opinion. And I think one of the things that makes this country and the world such an interesting place is the diversity and the differences in opinion. And I learned so much by hearing somebody's rationale for why they believe what they believe, especially if it's different from mine, like what informed their decision. I need to know that. It doesn't mean I have to change mine. It just means I have to recognize and just respect who they are. And we have lost that and people go to extremes. So we've always had the middle, the majority in the middle and then extremes on either end. And I think we just seem to be amplifying the ends, you know, the extremes rather than amplifying, I think, the majority of the people who want to get along and want to have a better situation than we have now.
0: It's interesting. As you approach all cultures, from a pure female perspective, what do you think are the commonalities when you work with different cu- cultures and what are the major differences? Do you think they come from the female side or do they, are they imposed upon them based on the way they've been raised?
1: I think that we have lots of different stories that have been told to us over the years and we hold on to what those stories are, even if we're not happy. If we're not happy with them, we may try to change them, but that's a big shift in our own sense of identity. You know, there is a common like phenomenon when you are the dominant group. And a lot of times men, if we're looking at gender, have been the dominant group. You don't necessarily notice certain things because you're the norm right you are in power you are in the dominant group but with groups that are not dominant the minority groups the underrepresented groups they notice a lot more about let's say power dynamics than people in the dominant group so women because they've not been in the dominant group for the majority of time then we notice certain aspects of things more than what men do so then we have choices to make And we have a lot of competing narratives in our head. It's women should be nice. They should be gentle. They should be liked. Women should assert, get what they want, be out there and advocate for themselves. Well, those are very contradictory messages potentially. And so women are at a loss because they have this like two narratives fighting with each other in their head about what to do. So if the More recent literature is saying, get out there and advocate and assert yourself and get what you want. Then we try to do that. But we have those other stories that we grew up with. Well, you know, you're not being very nice in that situation. And if you assert yourself, you may not be liked. And then what do we do with that? How do we reconcile those pulls on our attention and our behavior? It's it's a challenge, not impossible, but it's a challenge. (laughs)
0: I had probably about 10 years ago now, an opportunity to go and speak to some women entrepreneurs in China and the struggles they had. Some were very normal, but others seemed insurmountable based on the role they had to play at work running a huge company and then turn that switch off and play a different role at home. And I I see that many times, and I, I typically have worked in a female-led organization just because of the type of work in home care and hospice and the type of employees that end up working there. But a lot of times, those strong women have to turn that switch. Have you seen that? And and what advice would you give?
1: Yeah, sure. Thanks for that question. So, you know, we all are complex beings. We have multiple personas in us because of different influences and how we've shaped our lives and our careers. And so when you are interacting with somebody in a certain environment, it brings out a certain aspect of who you are. So when you're in the workplace versus when you're at home, there are different parts of who you are that surface and become more prominent, right? So it doesn't mean that you're not who you are, you're still being your authentic self. It's just that if you're going to be speaking to a six-year-old child versus a 50-year-old man, or an 80 year old woman, you're gonna shift how you talk because of who you're talking to. So I think that there have been struggles and sometimes people are more fluid in how they're able to transition between contexts. And sometimes it's just really jarring because the switch is so, so sort of like strong. And this really came out during the pandemic. So now you're at home Right. But you're on the work right environment in your on your Zoom or whatever platform you're using. And you may have children there. So you're a mother and you're pulling being pulled towards your children and helping with their schooling. But you're also professional because you're on Zoom. So wearing lots of different hats, but not leaving the same environment. So sometimes, you know, you get a, a cue from being OK, you open the office door and suddenly now you're in your professional mode. But if you haven't left home. It's like a lot of different switches that are not necessarily being made smoothly.
0: It's hard when you're, certainly, if you're my age and you're giving advice to a young woman who, you know, might have green or blue or purple in their hair and tattoos, which are very common, but they're a brilliant woman, but they're applying for a finance position and a conservative organization. It, it's hard when I think through. We tell these young women to be themselves, and yet I would tell them, you've got to play this down and dress for the audience that you're going to speak to, or they won't hear you. I mean, of course, if you're working in the university, you work with a lot of young women. What kind of advice without, I would say, crushing who they are, would you give them?
1: Yeah, so I have two ways of answering that. So one is I like to think about meeting people where they are and connecting and then pulling them a little bit where you want them to be. So if you're working in a very conservative place and you'd like people to be a little bit more liberal in their thinking, then you meet them where they are and you can't come in with the hair that won't let them listen to you. And then you figure out how to bring them a little bit closer. The other way of doing it is I think about developing the individual to be the best person she can be. So developing what I call like, you know, self as instrument of change. And you have to figure out who you are. And that's the core to everything is self-awareness development. And then you have to figure out how to develop the certain skills that you need and decide which challenges you're going to take on and which you're not. You can't challenge everything all day long, every day, or you will be exhausted and you'll probably feel defeated. So you have to pick, as I say, pick your battles. You have to pick where is something really important to me that I'm willing to take a risk and I'm willing to challenge the status quo. And where are things? You know what? It's just the way it is. I'm not going to fight this fight because it's just not that important to me. So I'll either accept it or go somewhere else. So you have to think about that. So it's really about developing your own sense of self and then deciding where you're going to apply that and applying that well and looking for the best fit you can find
0: to take it a little deeper only this is probably my curiosity i had the opportunity this last year to hear condolisa rye speak and the topic of russia came up And when you look at this very difficult situation, how would you, from a purely negotiating perspective, how would you try to negotiate some level of peace if you're speaking to the United Nations uh, or speaking to particular people? Because everyone seems to have an opinion on it, and yet the situation doesn't seem to be improving from a negotiating skills how would you approach that
1: well personally I wouldn't because that's not my my domain (laughs) however just in general (laughs) just in general I think you have to know what motivates the person who you're negotiating with so I'm not sure what really motivates Putin I think that um We've heard lots of different stories and different pundits who speculate on what they think it is, and maybe it's power, not sure. And then you have to think about, okay, what is negotiable and what is not negotiable? And sometimes other types of interventions need to be used, and that's just the way it is. I may not like it. Like, I don't really specialize in that really highly political world. I don't have the depth of the diplomatic history behind and all of that, and the history of the people in the country. I mean, of course, I know some, and I know it from a layperson's perspective. And then, as a negotiation person, I can look at it and see certain things from that lens. But I think that we have to defer to experts in that area. And I'm not so sure, though, that even experts know, because there's some level of unpredictability, which is what makes it dangerous, right? And so they say if you back somebody into a corner, and they have nothing else to do but fight their way out, then that's what you've created. So how do we create those openings for saving face? I think that's something I would explore if I was going to be called in to give advice on that situation. What kind of exit strategy can there be? What kind of off ramp can there be from the current situation there is that would save face and still get people to be safe and to end the conflict?
0: isn't that crazy that seems to be and you know i've been married a very long time and the the worst problems are usually the the silliest uh, i you know issues but when i can honestly say if you back either of us in the corner then then we have a problem of how do we get out without someone being defeated and someone winning You know, let's move to culture because I know that's another one of your topics. A friend of mine said this to me who has a fairly large company in in the millions, and he said, all the logos and the mission and the vision all don't mean anything uh, if you don't practice what you're saying in the local office. But the, the flip side of that is the larger a company gets, the greater distance there is from the person. If it was an entrepreneur and you have your own company, the farther they get, the harder it becomes to impact that on the ground people it, it, talk to us a little bit about culture and and the advice that you give to others on that the importance mm-hmm. and the risk and how do you grow i know that's probably a five-hour lecture <laughs> that you do
1: <laughs> it could be but I'll, I'll just give a shortened version <laughs> so there is that cliche you know think globally act locally so we are a global world and I do think globally and also try to act locally and that just means that there's such an influence around the world you know they say if a butterfly flaps its wings in one place what happens and we feel that impact all around the world so some things are more subtle some things are have a greater impact and so on But you have to um, have a shared meaning for what it means to be a leader, for what it means to work, for what it means to be in the workplace, because not everybody thinks the same way. And I wrote a chapter a couple of years ago for a leadership book on In Search of a Shared Narrative, because you have, um, let's just say, a CEO or president from one country working in another country a different country with a different culture but even inside of that office there are people from several different cultural orientations because also even within a a corporate or organizational culture different departments have different cultural tones to them like IT is different from sales is different from marketing is different from HR so you have so many ways of understanding roles and responsibilities and values and then you have to think about okay how do i act on that so all of the employees in an organization are going to have some expectations for the leader and they're probably not going to be the same and then the leader has his or her own expectations of what it means to be a leader and so how do you figure out a way to mesh so that you're all on the same page i'm going to lead Maybe with a hands-off style and maybe somebody wants more direction and needs more direction and doesn't respect my leadership because I'm not telling them what to do and I'm not being more directive as a leader. Somebody else wants uh, to be left alone. Just give me the resources I need. Give me a direction and I'm off and running to the races, whereas some leaders want to be more hands-on. So all of that gets very complicated and we have to think about the environment and nature of the company. Like what is it that the company does? Are they a service provider? Or are they a product creator? Like, what do they do? Do they work in the realm of ideas? Are they marketing? I think marketing agencies have some of the toughest challenges about thinking how to take their product global, even to name a product and to think about that logo, right? How does it get translated? I know there have been so many kind of mess-ups around the world because certain hand symbols mean certain things in one place and <laughs> something <laughs> different in another place. People get in that trouble. I made
0: mistake. <laughs> <you know? laughs>
1: Well, it's there a you go. There it's you a go. problem. So, how do you do? How do you convey those messages? I think it's an, a fascinating topic, and what we should do is not just go with our assumptions that everybody thinks the same way because we don't. And so, starting at that place and then figuring out ways to hear the different voices and different opinions and understand how to connect—I think that's what we have to do. We have to spend a lot more time on those cultural influences.
0: Do you know, um, I listen and I won't name the company, but uh, I listened to an entertainment, a documentary about a, uh, an entertainment company that had um, completely stripped some of the things that they say in the United States uh, from all their marketing, all their uh, posters, everything in a much more conservative country. Uh, The criticism there, you can really see from a culture perspective, here they're fighting for this and this and this, and there they're preventing any of that from being shown. So where does mission and value hit how you approach a different culture?
1: Yeah, so I mean, it's one thing to have a mission. It's another thing to how you act on that mission. Even if we take something as simple as, which is not simple, really, the concept of respect, which I mentioned earlier, how do we show respect? Some cultures, just from a very simplistic perspective here, some cultures say, okay, look me in the eye when you talk to me, and that's respectful. And that also means honesty, right? Like if you lie, you can't look somebody in the eye in this culture. (laughs) But in some cultures, looking down and not making that direct eye contact is respectful because looking them in the eye is aggressive. So if Mm -hmm. you're coming from one culture, and not understanding the behavioral patterns of another culture, you're going to have a lot of conflict. You're going to think, oh, that person is dishonest. I can't trust them because they can't even look me in the eye. And the other person is thinking, well, this leader is very immature not to realize that I am looking down to show reverence to the leader. So a lot of ways in which miscommunication happens there because we just don't know. And we think we do. When you
0: talk about some of these issues, and this switches just a little bit, one of the problems women have is that when they go to do an entrepreneurial business and it continues to grow, they need financing. And I will say there are many more today than there were 25 or 30 years ago, but most financial institutions are led by men, and there is some bias there when you go in to to do that in fact i just recently i was at an all almost all female led bank and they've all left <laughs> and you know so to go somewhere else which i don't know any of the details of that i just know now i am with a bank that it, and and their every every indication is they're good but they are all male now you know i'm at a point in my career i'm older than most people so there are some advantages i say to being old but are uh, older let me say that not um, you're not old. okay. <laughs> older but you know. What advice would you give to women going in to negotiate Financing, which really I've been told on multiple occasions, Marcel, if you were a man, the whole situation you wouldn't have gotten asked for a lot of the things you got asked for. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, and I, I, I let me just say from my perspective, you got to be the smartest person in the room, and if you got to go to ten banks, you go to ten banks. What advice would you give a woman starting out facing that from from a negotiation perspective?
1: Yeah, sure. So sometimes people tell me, well, it's so uncomfortable, I'm not sure and our insecurities sort of take over. And I say, okay, well, if you don't negotiate, are you comfortable? Well, no, I really want the financing for my company, like in the example you're giving. I say, all right, so you have two situations and you're not comfortable in either one. If you don't negotiate, then that discomfort is not going away. In fact, it may grow because you're challenging yourself in a way that you, you're not. And you're not challenging yourself, I should say. So you're not going forward and you're not asking and you're just wallowing in your situation, which make it worse. If you decide to go ahead and try something, then you have to prepare. It's critical to prepare. And when you're saying you have to be the smartest person in the room, maybe, but you definitely have to be well prepared. So that means you need to anticipate the kinds of questions you're going to be asked. You need to anticipate the kinds of information or ask what kinds of information do I need and over-prepare just so that you're building your confidence. And the other thing I would say is when we are in a negotiation, it's always good to have a spare question to be ready. So if something is said to us, that throws us off our center and sort of gets us in a little bit of a tizzy, then we ask a question that we have prepared and then we get that information. And as we're getting that information, we're gaining the information and we're also giving ourselves time to regain our composure. Because what you wanna do is you wanna stay in control of the flow of the negotiation. You don't want to buckle under. Now, maybe there's a, a situation where you're not gonna get the financing for this bank, but you know leave the door open and then thank people and move on, and maybe you have to go to another place. It doesn't mean you've lost. It just means that maybe there wasn't a fit. Maybe they really didn't have the appetite for your kind of business. Maybe they didn't have the appetite for your kind of budget line that you wanted to borrow. It doesn't mean it's you. There are so many other factors. But unfortunately, sometimes we say, oh, I should have, I didn't, whatever. So after the negotiation, it's very important to follow up because I always, I talk about in my book, three phases, the preparation during the negotiation and the follow-up. So after the follow-up, like in the follow-up, even if you didn't get the loan or you don't think it's going your way, you still thank them for their time. You ask, is there anything else I can provide for you that may shift your perspective on there so that would help inform your decision, whatever wording you want to use. And just keep that door open because you may want to go back there at some point in time. Or that person may end up at a different bank. You know, people move around. They don't stay in the same place all the time. So you always want to manage your relationships in a way that you're not losing your confidence. You have your confidence and you know what you're asking for is the right thing. It just may not be the right fit.
0: Great advice. I love that. Thinking of another question that you can ask that takes them off the subject to give you time to think.
1: I was also just, I just also add something to that. I was listening to something on LinkedIn earlier and somebody was saying, tell me more, tell me more. That's just a simple, a simple thing you can apply to anything. So they say, well, you know, this is really not a fit. It's not the industries we support or that that loan is too little or too great for us. Well, tell me more about that. You know, what what industries, like what is it about this industry Or my business that doesn't fit your portfolio, like just help me understand this better. Just ask for information because somehow maybe you're not framing it the way they need to hear it. So they tell you something else and you say, oh, okay. And then you shift how you talk about what you want in a way that they can hear it differently. And then it may open up a door. You never know what's going to light a spark and open up a pathway. Just never know.
0: I uh, gave that advice to my long ago, uh, one of my companies, to the IT department whose you know, answer was always no. <laughs> I mean, it was, whatever it was. Uh, and if any of those guys are listening, I love them dearly. Let me say that. <laughs> Let me send love out there. But, you know, that's that I tried to say make your answer instead of, no, are you crazy? Um, We don't have time, blah, 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 it's too hard. Maybe you should say, tell me more about what you want. Uh, Now, I will say sometimes that question for I'm a results oriented person, I'm, I get tired of wanting to, Mm -hmm. needing to tell them more. Um, But, you know, it's a great, it's really a great statement for anyone. You know, I know you talk, I've I've read uh, your bio and your information. You talk about some mentors. Can you talk about the importance of having good mentors, whether men or women, Or, or tell us about an individual who did that for you? because sometimes it's the simplest things that help us more than we can even imagine
1: yeah great in general i think it's really important to have mentors men or women whoever it is for different reasons right so sometimes i had mentors who just created their or blazed their own trail right so they they worked in organizations and they did what they did but then when something wasn't right, they had the courage to leave and do something different. And I admired that because they knew that they could no longer be relevant or no longer be satisfied in that particular workplace. So they had the courage to say, okay, I'm going to, you know, jump ship and go somewhere else. And that was fine for that worked for them, where there was one mentor I had very early on, who was actually my art teacher from when I was a little girl, <clears throat> excuse me, and, um, I just thought she was one of the most interesting people in the world. And I thought she was so eccentric and she was an archeologist and she would go on digs. And I remember thinking, wow, I wanna be a really interesting woman when I get older. And I don't know if I wanna be eccentric or not, but I wanna live a full life. And that I think is part of why I love traveling and love engaging with different cultures and different orientations, because that appealed to me and and I built on that, right? So, and then I've also seen women who, they can be really gentle, but super strong. And they, you just sense this inner strength. And I'm like, wow, you really don't have to bash somebody over the head to get what you want. You can be gentle, but firm. And I love that. And I admire that. And I worked over the years to try to hone those kinds of skills for me. So you can feel my Power And I'm not saying it works all the time, but you feel my presence in the room and I don't have to bash you on the head with anything because you just feel it because, you know, I'm solid. And that's the effort that I've wanted to I put into wanting to develop that kind of persona. And so I, but I learned that elsewhere.
0: It's it's a, a wonderful thing. I, I have a dear friend who helped me so much early in my career and. Um, who who has the statement of "Don't mistake my kindness for weakness," that's right. um, just a remarkable woman, and that's stayed with me all along. Um, talk to me. I love to end our time with um, discussing any, your favorite books, and I know you have a new book called "New Story, New Power: A Woman's Guide to Negotiation." Um, so. Talk to us about your favorite books or books that you're reading that are or podcasts that you're listening to. Of course, 50% with Marcel Combs, I'm sure. (laughs) Um, But uh, talk to me about the things where you're
1: learning. Yeah, that's great. So this particular book came about because i was noticing patterns with the women i was working with and i wanted to learn more so i looked at the existing research to see what people were saying because even though i'm a scholar practitioner I, my labeling for myself is not researcher right I, I engage i work i'm a practitioner and educator so i wanted to understand what was out there and i saw great stuff but really contradictory And I said, it says up, it says down, it says left, it says right. I'm like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do with this? Because it's not helpful to me as a practitioner to say, yeah, well, whatever works, because that's not the case. So then I said, okay, let me do my own interviews. Let me learn from the women I work with. And I tried to pull out the strategies and tactics that do work. And that's what I wanted to focus on. And I wanted to take that practitioner lens I have and put it into a book that's useful. I didn't want it to sit on a shelf collecting dust. I want people to be able to pick it up, turn to any page, and walk away being able to do something. And that's the way I have my coaching, my workshops, my education. I admire people who can really digest very heady, complex concepts into very accessible language. That's something that's really appealed to me in the nonfiction world. And now what I've been doing, which is something I've always wanted to do and was my original inspiration in writing, is I'm learning how to write fiction. And it is really challenging. I love good character development. I love excitement. I love the thrill of how things unfold and they just bring you in and they layer it up. I want to be able to do that. So that's my learning edge right now is how do you do character development that's real and i love historical fiction historical so and it's cultural right so i love reading whenever i used to travel too i would try to read a novel from that place so i could learn about the customs and the people so that's where my learning edge is now and it's really about the art of telling a story and so it's still connected very much to my work because i'm also thinking about how the characters in my novel i'm writing how they negotiate with one another how they negotiate their circumstances their time period and everything else. So, that's my big challenge right now is is fiction.
0: That's you know I I love a good fiction. I just happened I can't I got back from Mexico last night uh, just on pure pure fun. Let's say that, but um, I love um, just a good fiction or I, I would say a mindless read that you get to know the characters. Yeah. It's a, it's a great thing. Well, it, it's been a delight to spend some time with you this morning. How can people get in touch with you, Beth?
1: Oh, thank you for that. It's been a wonderful conversation for me, too. Well, it's very simple. As I have a website. It's bethfisheryoshida.com, one word. And I'm also at Columbia University in the city of New York. So one of those two places you should be able okay. to find me. I'm not that hard to find if you really want to get in touch.
0: <laughs> well, it's it's been delightful. Thank you for the work that you're doing. I'm going to pick up your book. DeAntha and I, my Thank co-host, you. have been doing some reviews of the book. So maybe we'll put yours on the list oh, and a uh, do a little mm-hmm. review for you. Um, so I, I appreciate so much your time. And I know um, that the audience is going to love that. And thank you for being on 50% with Marcel Combs.
1: Thank you. If I can say one more thing that if people want to go out and buy the book and write me a review on Amazon, and let me know, I will give a 30 minute coaching session for free.
0: Ooh, aren't you great? So everyone <laughs> sign up for that out there. there you go. <laughs> so uh, I I have some friends. Maybe I'll I'll get them to. uh Very good. I, I have some of those you know smarter than me friends that <laughs> uh, are out there doing some remarkable things. So I'll I'll send that message out today, Beth. Thank, Thank you so much. much. I appreciate that. Okay. them. Yes. Take care.